It's important, you know, if someone's telling their story about a situation that has happened or has occurred, instead of writing them off or blowing them off or talking over them, just listen, you know, hear them out. I'm Dr. Jen Barna. Thank you for being here with me today on Doc Working, the Whole Physician podcast. I'm super excited to bring to you Dr. Tamika Cross, OBGYN, and her story is so interesting. She's just published a book called What a Doctor Looks Like. And to give you a little bit of background, as a young doctor early in her career, Tamika found that the stereotypes and constant need to be validated did not disappear even after 20 years of schooling that she endured. One of many instances that highlighted this truth was when Tamika found herself on a plane, 30,000 feet in the air, attempting to offer medical assistance to an unresponsive passenger, only to be denied access by crew members who did not believe Tamika was a doctor. After sharing her story publicly and gaining international media attention, Tamika was able to start a viral movement of hundreds of thousands of medical professionals all over the world that joined in solidarity, posting pictures of themselves with the hashtag, what a doctor looks like. By exemplifying the diversity among doctors, this movement was able to negate the myth that there's one prototype for what a doctor looks like. Besides starting an international conversation of bias in the workplace, Tamika's story became an integral part of diversity and inclusion training at schools and companies coast to coast. I have to say I am completely captivated by your book and I highly recommend it. Dr. Cross, welcome to Doc Working, the whole physician podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Well, before we get into the why of what motivated you to write this book, I would love to hear a little bit about you as a person and your experiences that caused you to become a doctor. You actually go into a wonderful description of this in the book as well. So can you tell me a little bit about growing up as a child wanting to be a doctor? Yeah. So I am from Detroit, Michigan and moved out to the suburbs when I got a little bit older going into elementary school, but still in the Metro Detroit area. And yeah, I've wanted to be a doctor since I was a kid. I know a lot of doctors say that, but I truly did. And my grandmother was probably the only one that I was really close to that was in healthcare at that time. She was a registered nurse. And just talking to her about all of her different experiences as far as, you know, patient interactions and the different stories she had from nursing school and things like that. It really made me interested in the sciences and medicine and things like that at an early age. And then even taking it a step further, when she started experiencing health concerns later on in her life, being a part of, you know, her doctor's appointments and the things that she liked about certain doctors or didn't like about others and the bedside manners and, you know, understanding some of the logistical stuff, the systemic stuff behind, you know, why she liked certain doctor's offices, why she liked certain clinics or hospitals, things like that. So I was very involved in that process. And so I really wanted to be able to be that, be the doctor that, you know, my patients can relate to, be the doctor that my patients can let their hair down, be comfortable with. And so that was probably my earliest inspiration into the medical field. And specifically, I wanted to be the doctor. I wanted to be the one treating the patient. It sounds like your grandmother had a huge influence on you, not only as a nurse and as someone that you admired in healthcare, but also because she took you with her to her appointments from a young age. And I do think it's interesting how so many of us look back and we see these 
times when we were a young kid where, you know, other people might not have really picked up on the same cues or been as interested, but you were there as a young child and you're noticing who's who in the room and which doctors had a good rapport with your grandmother. And you were inspired by that, if I'm understanding correctly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that was the spark that led you to want to become a doctor down the road. You have an older brother as well, who you aspired to keep up with as a young kid from your stories in your book. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. My older brother, Melvin, he's about two and a half years older than me. And we grew up very close, same household and a lot of similar interests. And so, you know, just by default, I wanted to do everything that my big brother could do, you know? And so, I mean, from swimming, when he learned how to swim, when he could ride his bike without training wheels, when he could stay up late to watch movies, when he could be out with his friends, even though I was younger, I always wanted to do whatever he was doing, whatever he was allowed to do. Yeah. My brother is one of my best friends and we've been close since we were kids and still to this day. So definitely somebody who I look up to as a role model. He's not in the medical field, but just as far as, you know, just his personal morals, values, work ethic. He's an amazing husband and father. And I love my brother so much. It sounds like he was a wonderful inspiration to you growing up as you were a couple of years younger, trying to keep up with him. You were intellectually challenged, trying to do everything he did, which put you naturally very ahead of your age, it sounds like. And I think that the description there is kind of the quintessential upcoming physician, you know, child who is, you know, very intellectually engaged and really interested in trying all these different things. Super smart, high achieving kid, basically. It sounded like from the book, you mentioned a pivotal time where you went and attended a class or a summer program at Emory, where you went for 10 days and how that really influenced you as well. Were you a high school student at that time? Yes, I was in the summer between my 10th and 11th grade year, and it was called the National Youth Leadership Forum, and they have them in different specialties, but it was the one on medicine. And one of my teachers had actually secretly nominated me for that. And so I had no idea until I received something in the mail inviting me to this 10-day program. This was the first time being, you know, so far away from home by myself, except for like a local camp. And so it was a big deal for me to be able to go down there and just to be able to be exposed to the medical field on another level that I had never seen before. Going into the OR, shadowing residents and doctors and medical students, you know, sitting in on procedures. Like that was something I had never been exposed to. Well, most children, I don't think are exposed to that at that age. So yeah, I was super excited to be able to attend that at Emory. It was just confirmation of what I wanted to do as far as be a physician. It sounds like it was a wonderful opportunity for you as a high school student to really be inspired and know that becoming a physician was the right direction for you. And then reading about your experience as you applied to college, you were looking nationally and went to one of the premier undergraduate schools in the nation, University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and then on to medical school to specialize ultimately in OBGYN. So one thing that I'm really curious to hear about, particularly in your story, is that despite the fact that you have this really kind of a classic story of a physician that so many of us can relate to and share in wanting to be a physician from a young age, You also talk about in the book, some disturbing interactions that happened to you as a child, as early as age four, when you first experienced racism. Can you tell me about that? 
So I do start off the book talking about, you know, my first experience with racism as a four-year-old and not really fully understanding it at that young age, what it was. But yes, at the time I was at a daycare that was pretty diverse. And we had just moved actually from Detroit, from the inner city out to the suburbs. And so it was pretty diverse. And that was my first time experiencing it because at that age, everybody just kind of plays with everybody, right? So it's like, hey, you like to do this, you like to do that, you like to sing this song or whatever. And those are the types of things that, you know, really foster those friendships at a young age. And so it didn't really matter to most kids, at least in my opinion, as far as, you know, where you came from, what your background was, what you talk like, what you look like, things like that. And so I remember one day, one of the newer girls at the daycare, and she was Caucasian, and she was not allowed to play with me and my other friend who was also African-American. And so because she wasn't allowed to play with me anymore, you know, it was kind of confusing. I didn't understand why. And she explained that her, you know, parents told her that she couldn't play with us anymore because we were Black. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) And so I remember just kind of innocently just talking to my mom about it when she picked me up from daycare that day and just telling her why I wasn't able to play with her anymore. And like I said, at that time, I didn't fully understand it. My brother understood it. My mother understood it, of course. And then over some time I did. And so it kind of stuck in my head as my earliest experience with somebody not wanting to be friends or really her parents were telling her not to be friends with me because of the color of my skin. And fast forwarding to your medical career, you've experienced some other incidences that you describe in the book. And I wonder if you would mind sharing some more of that with us. Does another one in particular come to mind? Yeah, there's several. (laughs) There are several. So I didn't really experience a ton of racism after that as a child, because the area that I was in at the time it was diverse, but then over the years it predominantly became African-American. And so it wasn't as diverse. And so I didn't really experience it. And so then going to actually college is when I experienced that again, where I became that minority again. And that was a different experience. And so I know one thing that stuck out to me when I was in college was my calculus class. And so all of us have to take calculus. It was the prerequisite for most degrees and in particular to apply to medical school, as you know. So I was in my calculus class and I was actually really good at math. That's always been my best subject. I took AP Cal in high school. So I was pretty confident with my answers in that class. And so, you know, at the time when I was at Michigan, it was only about 4% African-American. So definitely a minority. So I remember when we used to, the structure of the class went, we would have lectures a couple times a week. And then we would also have a discussion or like a smaller group where we would kind of, you know, sit and talk about like the homework assignments and go work through problems and things of that nature. We also had team homework. So with team homework, you had to kind of get together with your group, just like any group assignment and basically answer the questions that were assigned that week and submit one answer for the group. And so every time that I was in the group as the only African-American female, my answers were always questioned, you know? So anytime I submitted an answer, it was like, well, let's check your work, you know? And it's like, well, why are you checking my work? You're not checking anybody else's work. And so it was this constant, subtle, but not so subtle experience of, you know, my classmates just questioning the answers that I was submitting. And it always checked out to be correct, (laughs) but that got a little tiresome. 
And so then I remember in particular one day in class, it was a very difficult, somewhat of a trick question that he asked us to work out. And people kept raising their hand, going to the board, working it out and getting the answer wrong. But he wasn't saying that it was wrong. He was just like, okay, who else wants to try? Who else wants to try? And so that kind of continued. And I didn't raise my hand. I've always been that overachiever that raises my hand in class. And, you know, if I know the answer, I'm going to say it. Like, I don't care. (laughs) But I felt like a fish out of water when I was there. This was my first year. I already had experienced multiple situations that made me feel less welcome when I was on campus. So I was somewhat academically shy. So I didn't want to raise my hand. I was scared of being like labeled as like the dumb black girl. And I had never really felt that way before. So I purposely didn't raise my hand and my teacher called on me. And so he asked me to come to the board and work the problem. And I'm like, okay, I did not raise my hand. So I went to the board and I worked out the problem. And then, you know, he asked other people like, you know, okay, anybody else have anything? He didn't say if it was right or wrong. He just kept going through each person. And when I went up there, from what I recall, I thought the answer was like zero. So it was like a trick question, but people were giggling when I was up at the board, like giggling, like, okay, that's wrong. That's not, how did she get that answer? You know, et cetera. And so again, I was just feeling like, oh, this is why I didn't want to go up there. So I sit down in my seat and he goes through all of this. And then he basically ends up saying that the only person that was correct was me and that my answer was correct. And, you know, people were kind of like shocked and a couple of people in my class that were friends at the time, you know, kind of fist bumped me and, you know, it was a good feeling, but I didn't really feel that happy in that moment because I didn't like how my low self-esteem was kind of put on blast in front of everybody. And that, you know, a subject that I was so confident at and that I had already, you know, known that my answer was correct. And then here I am being questioned just because, you know, of what I look like. It just was a very humbling experience. And so after class, my teacher pulled me aside and he could tell I was like on the verge of tears. And he asked me if I wanted to drop the class. And it's funny because I had actually considered dropping the class. I mean, I had to take the class regardless, but dropping that section. I had considered it because I had already felt so uncomfortable with the team homework. And, you know, I was just like, maybe I should just try to switch into another class where maybe it won't be the same experience. But then after class, when he asked if I wanted to drop the class, my teacher was Caucasian as well. I was kind of like thrown off by it. And I was like, well, what do you mean drop the class? And he was like, well, you know, I've been watching and, you know, I can tell that you feel uncomfortable and I don't like the way that you know they're treating you. And, you know, you may do better in another class when you're not experiencing this. I mean, it came from a good place, but I think he felt uncomfortable watching that day in and day out. And it's funny because I was planning on dropping it. And then when he suggested it to me, I don't know, like my pride set in. I was like, drop the class. Like, I would never drop this class. Like, yeah, right. It's not a big deal. You're and, the only you know, one to drop the right? He <laughs> <laughs> needed you in the yeah. class. Yeah. And I remember I just had a good experience the rest of the class with him because he just took a special interest in me, I guess. So that was just like my first time. I guess it sticks out to me because all those years of like really not being questioned and everybody knew like I finished you know top 10% of my class in high school and I was in the National Honor Society and Scholars Plus and you know I'm here at Michigan on a full academic scholarship I've never really had my academics questioned so that was like my first time of people just questioning me not because I did something wrong because of what I look like or my background and so it really stuck out to me and it was a very difficult year to transition back to that when I was at the University of Michigan. 
does sound like a painful experience. And as you said earlier, you've had multiple experiences like that, even in medicine as a practicing physician and as a resident coming up as you were becoming a practicing physician. There's a story that you tell in the book of a time when you were practicing with a renowned physician attending who you deeply admired and you were thrilled to be working alongside of her as a resident. Can you tell me about that story? Yes, that story I'll never forget either. So I was a second year resident at the time as an OBGYN resident at my program. We really worked with our special care unit or like the high risk obstetric patients. And so we had a patient, she was pregnant and she was admitted with pyelonephritis or kidney infection. And so at that time, you know, basically in pregnancy, they can get really sick, you know, whether they develop an abscess or, you know, if they're not improving on, you know, IV antibiotics. And again, I'm sharing this with, you know, the viewers, I know you know this, but because of that, we were just really concerned with this patient checking her vital signs, things like that. So she had to leave the unit to actually go to your territory, to the radiology suite in order to have imaging done because we were concerned since she wasn't improving that there was some type of like perinephric abscess or something like that. So when she left the floor, we went to go check on her, my attending and I. And so when we went to go check on her, she wasn't doing well. She was tachycardic. She became hypotensive. She was lethargic. We were concerned that, you know, she was going into septic shock. So we did call a rapid response at that time. And so, you know, the nurses rush in, you know, when you call a rapid response or a code, the ICU team comes in, the nurses, they bring a crash cart, the ICU attending comes in. So it's just really to get all hands on deck, especially because we're in the middle of a radiology suite (laughs) at the time. And so that happened. And the first person to arrive was an ICU nurse who was one of their, I guess, top nurses at that hospital. And when she arrived, she was kind of looking around like, what did y'all call for? And so, you know, we gave, you know, SBAR, we gave like a checkout on why we were calling, you know, the rapid response, what the patient was here for, you know, in a quick one or two lines of what was going on. The patient was still alert and responsive, not as responsive as we would want her to be, but she was responsive. So she's like, well, she's talking, she's reading, like, why did you call it a rapid response? Which is not to the level of a code, but it's like the step before. And it's like, well, we're trying to prevent the code. So we're trying to get intervention now. So, you know, we're giving her orders, which at that time, it's really not a time as you've probably seen, like in a code, that's not a time to question judgment, question cause. It's like, okay, what do you need? And you get it and you act quickly. And so, you know, at the time we were rattling off, you know, orders to her and she wasn't doing it. You know, I wanted to get an additional IV. I wanted to get some fluids. I wanted to get pressors on deck, you know, things like that. And she was just looking at me blankly. And so then my attending who was standing there right with me, who's triple boarded in maternal fetal medicine and OBGYN and critical care medicine and the director at the hospital. She's African-American as well. She started rattling off the same orders, like, you know, we need this stat, we need that stat. And she just wasn't really doing anything. She was just sitting here questioning why we were calling this and this was unnecessary. So people are arriving to the scene and she's telling them like, oh, it's no big deal. Patient's talking, patient's fine, you know, blowing it off. And so then the ICU attending, tall white male comes in and he's like, she's going into septic shock. Why don't we have another IV and rattling off the same thing? that we had just ordered. And she's like, right away, doctor. And she's basically doing all the orders that he's rattling off. And so he kind of saw that dynamic. And so the patient stabilized, she was fine. And then afterwards, you know, he kind of pulled us aside in the hallway, just talking about how embarrassed he was. And, you know, he didn't know why she was behaving like that. 
But I mean, we all know why she was behaving like that. <laughs> you know, it could have been gender, could have been race, because we were two African-American women. It wasn't age because, you know, there was about a 40-year age gap between the two of us. So I don't think it was that. But either the fact that we are women or the fact that we were African-American, but she was not listening to anything that we said. And so he came in and said the exact same orders. So that did stick out to me as just like, wow, well, I've been undermined and I know I'm just a resident and, you know, but here she is. Does she know who she is? Does she know the textbooks that she's written and the papers and the research that she's done all over the country? And, you know, regardless, it's like, you know, we were dressed the same. We all had on the same white coat and the badge. She knew we were doctors. We introduced ourselves as such. So there was really no confusion there. Yeah, it was a very unfortunate situation. Luckily, the patient did okay, but it could have ended very badly for the patient. Absolutely. And that really brings to mind the kind of thoughts that might come through your mind as a resident, which would be, you know, am I being overlooked because I'm a resident or is it because I'm a woman or is it because of my race? But having her there and having her be a senior person who is nationally well-respected in addition to being highly respected in the hospital and a director, as you said. So that really clarified it. So it was unquestionable. And it's disturbing that you have had to go through these experiences, but I'm especially grateful that you've written this book to talk about these experiences because I'm sure from talking with other people, knowing that you're not alone, it must be very motivational. Is that the right word to use to describe what is making you be willing to tell your story? Because for people who are not present when something like that happens, we need to know that these things are happening. And after all of these experiences that you've had, there was another kind of a moment, perhaps a pivotal moment. I don't know. I'm curious to hear from you that happened when you were not in the hospital, but had to do with your role as a physician when you boarded a flight on October 16th, 2016 from Detroit to Minneapolis. And listeners may have read about this in the news at the time or may have seen it on social media, but I'm hoping that you'll tell us what happened there as well. Yeah, absolutely. So as you stated, you know, I was going from Detroit to Minneapolis. I had a layover, but I was really coming back to Houston was my final destination and back home for a childhood friend, her wedding, everything was great. And then yes, when we were on the flight midair, there was a flight emergency where a patient was unresponsive and they needed medical personnel. So they asked for, you know, physician or, you know, medical personnel. And so well, I guess to backtrack a little bit. So the first time it actually happened, there was like shrieking. I had headphones on. I couldn't hear exactly where it was coming from. And so when I first kind of looked over to see what happened, they kind of had blown it off and said, oh, he was just having a night terror. It's fine. He was good. He was responsive. So then when it happened again, they were like, no, we need to get, you know, medical personnel to help. This was just a couple of rows in front of me and on the other side of the aisle. And so at the time, the flight attendant was walking to the back while shouting out orders to the other flight attendants to crawl over the intercom on the plane to see, you know, who was on board to be able to assist. So I kind of like tried to flag her down as she was passing my seat to let her know like, hey, I'm a physician. And she was like, you know, oh no, sweetie, we're looking for actual physicians right now. I don't know what she thought I was getting her attention for. <laughs> I don't know if she thought I was going to ask for a drink or ask for a cookie. I don't know. But she immediately blew me off. And right when she's saying that, now you're hearing it on the intercom in the plane where they're asking for, you know, a physician. And so I'm still like talking to the lady and I'm like, 
pressing my button because it said press your call button. So I'm pressing my button. And she's like, oh, you're an actual physician. And, and it was just like, okay. <laughs> so we basically enter into an exchange, a conversation where she starts questioning me like, oh, you're a physician. Well, why were you in Detroit? And, you know, where are you coming from? And, you know, where do you practice at? And you have your degree on you? And, you know, what credentials do you have on you? And, you know, just asking me all these questions, mind you, this person's still unresponsive. So I'm just like, okay, can I assist the person? But she didn't want me to even get up out of my seat. And so she could verify who I was. And she didn't believe the credentials that I had stated verbally to her. And so basically there was this back and forth. And so eventually somebody else, middle-aged white man, comes from the front of the plane and he's walking back to where the unresponsive passenger is. And that's when she lets me know, like, you know, thank you, but we don't need your help. He's a physician and he has his credentials. And I was just like, how do you know he has his credentials? You've been talking to me this whole time. You know, you haven't talked to this man, but you just know he has his credentials. So it was kind of like just showing up and fitting the description is kind of how I like to describe it. So they let him assist the passenger. It's fine. And then after some time kind of goes on, I guess, you know, he was a little tapped out as well. So they kind of just wanted a second person. So she came back to me asking me questions and bringing me vital signs and things like that, like written on a little piece of scratch paper, like this is the blood pressure. What should we do? And as you know, being a physician, it's difficult to imagine trying to treat a patient through a middleman. You know, you're not letting me actually interact with the person. You're not letting me get a history, get an exam. You're not letting me, you know, do anything. You're coming and you're bringing me little pieces of paper that has like little values on it and trying to see, well, what would you do just to see if it matches up to what the other physician is saying? Normally, I wouldn't even entertain something like that, but it's an emergency. We're 30,000 feet in the air. I'm like, let me do what I can to help the patient, passenger, excuse me. (laughs) And so... This continued and, you know, passenger was fine. And then she came back over to me towards the end of the flight and just, you know, started making small talk about, oh, what kind of doctor are you? Oh, my daughter just had a baby. Oh, you know, et cetera. And trying to just tell me that it was a big misunderstanding and that she wanted to transfer some sky miles into my account if I would give her my number. And I told her, no, it's not necessary. And as soon as I got off the plane, I reported it. And it essentially had to escalate it up to the company until somebody took it serious. Cause the first person I reported it to gave me a free drink ticket. And I knew that they didn't get it. They didn't get the gravity of the situation. And I'm like, I'm not looking for a rum and coke. <laughs> That's not what I'm looking for. And at the time I sat on a lot of different committees from a safety standpoint. I was actually a chief resident at the time. So I sat on a lot of the different safety committees at the hospital. So that's just how my brain works. Like this is a safety issue. How can we prevent this from causing a negative outcome in the future? And so that was kind of the mode I was in. So I escalated it up through the company all the way up to the CEO of the airline and basically continued to call and write and meet with them until they revisited their policies. Because essentially they were saying that she did act within the policy of the airlines and that you are supposed to verify credentials and things like that. And that she did what she was supposed to. And that's when I went, you know, with a mentor of mine, just showing, you know, data. And there was actually a recent article in JAMA that talked about that. And in the flight emergency, there's not time for that. You're supposed to be able to state your credentials and then allow to help. Now, if I was going to sit over here and crack open somebody's chest, yeah, you may want to verify my credentials (laughs) online first. 
But, you know, just to do an initial, because I mean, let's face it, you don't have to be a physician to assist. I mean, if they had a paramedic, if they had a nurse, like, you know, anybody in the medical field would be better than nothing, you know, a flight attendant with no medical training. So they realized how outdated their policy was and how problematic it was. And they actually changed their policy as a result of those continued meetings on December 1st, 2016. So yeah, it was a lot that transpired from that. And I did share in order to get their attention because they were initially addressing the issue and the importance of the issue. I did post my situation to social media. And that story is what ended up going viral unbeknownst to me when I was on my second leg of my flight. And then that's where all the news stories and television shows and things like that came as a result of that incident. And then that's, of course, with any major company, when they see that, they're like, okay, let's call this woman. Let's see what we can do to figure out what's going on. First of all, I mean, kudos to you for everything you've accomplished, because it's difficult enough to just be pre-med and just go to medical school and just be a resident and just be a practicing physician, but to do it with the extra burden of these types of incidents and you know, things that make it more difficult to accomplish all the way through along the way, at what point did you decide to tell your story? Because that's another burden really to have to tell your story or to feel a need to tell a story, you know? So I'm curious what your thought process has been with that decision. Yeah, I think that incident is really what served as the motivation behind sharing my story because I shared that one isolated event that happened on the airlines in 2016. And I saw how much it resonated with people all over the country and even in other countries. I had people in other countries sending me stuff, some stuff I couldn't even read who's in other languages. (laughs) And it really helped me to understand like, wow. And I knew that this was not a unique incident. You know, yeah, this is an incident that I'm bringing to the limelight because people need to know that this stuff happens. But I know that it happens every day from colleagues and friends, but to understand like how much of an impact that it made, because as soon as I shared my story, all these other physicians from different backgrounds, different gender, nationalities, religions, every different background was sharing their stories. And that's where that what a doctor looks like hashtag came from, because you know, in that situation, you know, they didn't believe that I was a doctor based on what I looked like, whatever that means. So it's like, well, what does a doctor look like? We look like all different things, different shapes, sizes, colors. And so that's when that hashtag really went viral. I understood that how many people needed to hear that story and how many people could, by me sharing my story, it opened up that door. So when I saw that, it motivated me to want to share not only that one story, as you know, it's only one chapter in the book, but to share all the other stories of the journey that, you know, I had in becoming a physician, because it's very similar to a lot of people's stories who look like me, whether it be another woman, whether it be another African-American, you know, whether it be somebody else from, you know, an inner city, whatever it may be. And so that's what really motivated me to share those stories, even though some of those stories, like some of my best friends, They're learning stuff about me from the book that they never even knew that I encountered, especially, you know, just some of the different identity issues that I had as a light-skinned little Black girl, right? And what that means and how my hair is not like, you know, everybody else's and et cetera. So because of that, it made me want to share my story because I realized that it could motivate somebody else 
that is starting at that same point or starting at some point in that journey that, hey, you too can become a doctor, stay the course, you know, and serve as like a motivation that, you know, there's no cookie cutter experience that's going to get you to becoming a physician. It's really about perseverance, persistence, and really just blocking out the naysayers and staying focused on the dream and the goal. And that's why the subtitle of my book is Society's Unrealistic Dreams Are Your Attainable Goals. Because society tells us so many things is unrealistic. You know, I mean, people told me I would never become a doctor, including my advisor in college who encouraged me to change my major. And so, you know, if I listened to those people, I wouldn't be the physician that I am today. And so it's really just to kind of serve as motivation as well. I think it's a wonderful point also on what we're terming the new era of leadership in medicine, which we all recognize is sorely needed. And I think we're at the beginning of a transformation now where people typically, when they move up into a leadership role, they're looking at other leaders they know as examples. And it's important to look within yourself and see who you are and how you can lead. And I think you're showing people that by doing what you're doing. And you're showing people as an example yourself that younger physicians can look up to and try to see themselves in you and the example that you're setting. So I think it's a wonderful step that you're taking, even though it is a burden to tell the story, because unfortunately, these things should never happen. And it's crazy to think that in 2021, we are still seeing this. Crazy to think in this century, we're still seeing this. But since we are, we need to address it head on. And I really commend you for doing that and for opening this door for so many of us. Thank you. Thank you. And is there anything that you would advise a younger physician at this point, if you were, say, looking back to yourself and thinking, you know, with everything that you know now, what would you say to your younger self? I would say to myself or to any other young aspiring physician, you know, stay the course. And there's going to be a lot of things that happen along the journey. It's not going to be a straight path, right? It's not a straight path for most of us. You're going to have, you know, some bumps in the road, some curves, things of that nature. But it's important, you know, if that's really what you want to achieve and that's your goal, that's your dream, don't let anybody tell you that it's not attainable or that it's not possible for you to do that. And I think it's also important about what decisions you make and who you surround yourself around. And so I always tell people, you know, that's really, really important. So for me, even though like my grandmother was my inspiration in becoming a physician, you know, she wasn't a physician. She was an RN. And her journey back many years before mine is going to be very different. And it's because of a track to go to nursing school. Right. And so I didn't have another physician in the family to look up to or to really kind of teach me this blueprint. So I had to really identify mentors, whether they look like me. And sometimes some of them didn't look like me, but to be able to have somebody that understood my background and that could help me get to where I needed to get. And so sometimes you have to put yourself in that uncomfortable situation and get outside of your comfort zone to be able to identify people that can help you get to where you need to get. And you really have to drop the pride sometimes to do that. And I do think that sometimes it can be more helpful if it's coming from somebody that looks like you, because some of the struggles that you're having along the way may be specific to what you look like and they can relate on a different level. So, you know, like when I went through that, one of my mentors, the director I was talking about, Dr. Dr. Witte, when I went through that, that was a good person for me to go through that with, because 
you know, I could talk to her about it because I was discouraged after that. And I was like, well, there's no hope for me. <laughs> you're near retirement and you're still dealing with the same, you know, things that I would think is over and done with and is in the past. Did you see your reaction being different from hers in that situation? It was. My reaction was different from hers. She was appalled, but hers was a little bit more desensitized. And it's like, because you get used to dealing with it so much that we become desensitized to it. And that's kind of how I was getting. But that situation, I was like, this is a big deal. And so I wanted her to be more outraged. You know, I was like, are you angry? Are you like, like, I'm angry, you know? And so it was a different reaction. And so it really took, you know, her pulling me to the side and kind of talking through that, that I don't think everybody would be able to do if they couldn't relate to that experience. And she had had a hundred different experiences like that in the past through her journey and becoming a nurse and then becoming a physician after that. So she had both in her past. So, yeah. How would you advise someone who is dealing with a situation similar in any way to that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think like, again, as far as, you know, having a good solid mentor that you can kind of talk through those situations with whoever you identify as such is important. And I also think it's important to really, you have to pick your battles, right? You have to pick your battles. So it's going to happen. And you have to know that it's going to happen and it's going to happen again. And it's going to happen again. And how you react to the situation makes the world of difference. And so sometimes I think we just learn to just brush it to the side. We don't want to be labeled as aggressive. We don't want to be labeled as, you know, a troublemaker. We don't want to be labeled as anything disruptive. And it depends on where you go, but we are kind of like, once you get into that position, sometimes people make it feel like, you know, you're lucky that you had this chance, you know? And we're conditioned that way in medicine in general. We don't make Mm -hmm. waves. You take whatever is put on you and you just do whatever you can with it. Don't complain. Yeah. That's the culture already. And then. Yeah. And then there's definitely another element or another layer to it. I think being a woman and there's another layer to it being a minority, an African-American or, you know, another person of color. So I think that those are important layers because when you think about women, you know, especially like if you're in a competitive field or you're in a surgical specialty, it's almost taught like, you know, if you want to roll with the big dogs, you know, suck it up. You know, they're going to talk about different. I've had times in the ORs where they're saying like sexist things and you're just, you know, told to just be quiet and ignore it. And for years, it's been a male dominated field. So, you know, we're supposed to just suck up and deal with the sexist remarks that we hear day in or day out. Or you tell somebody like, oh, yeah, well, the doctor's coming in. It's like, well, I don't see him. It's like, why is it a help? (laughs) You know, so it's just little things. And then, you know, definitely being treated differently as a woman and then being a person of color is an added layer to that. So I encourage people like, yes, pick your battles. You know, you can't sit up here and argue about every time that something happens that's not fair, right? That's going to happen. But at the same time, you know, speak up, speak up about it. And a lot of people are concerned about speaking up because they're concerned about what the consequence is going to be. And the consequences can be heavy. I'm not going to lie. That situation happened in 2016. Like I told you, I was a chief resident at the time of my program. I was interviewing for jobs, like literally in the middle of interviewing for jobs. That's when this happened. And I was told by several people to take it down take down your post and stop talking about it or you're not going to get a job. And I had that option. I considered it. I'm not going to lie. I considered it like, man, you work all this time to get here and you're finally getting an interview for your first job as like a real physician, an attending physician. And this happens. 
And so that's why I always tell people, they're like, oh, you did this for attention. No, I didn't do this for attention. Why would I want that kind of attention in the middle of an interview? And so I do think it negatively impacted me. Every single interview I went on that season asked me about it. You're the girl from the news. How does it feel to be famous? How does it feel to, you know, cause an uproar? And sometimes it was the negative undertone. So, you know, you have to pick your battles, but at the same time, I think it's important to, you know, really understand what you're doing and know that the overarching goal, at least in my case, I felt like the overarching goal was more important than anything else. And I'm like, if you're not going to hire me because of this situation, when I was the victim in the situation, then I don't want to work there anymore. Right. That's a very important point. So I think it's really important to stand up for what values are important to you. And if an employer doesn't match those values, you don't want to work there anyway. So that makes complete sense. And I'm happy to hear that that's what you did. And it did work out in the long run. So if it made you steer away from some places, then that's probably for the better. (laughs) Absolutely. And I ended up like taking a job at the place where I was actually in residency at, at the University of Texas. And they were super supportive through the entire process. So that let me know too, like how they deal with those situations and how they value. They didn't tell me to shut up and be quiet and stop talking. Because the media was, they, they were following me. They were coming to my job every single day. They were calling our department every single day, verifying if I was a real doctor, verifying if I was 28 years old, verifying, you know, all these different things. And it was tiresome for the department. So they could have easily told me, Tamika, we need you to be quiet. <laughs> but they didn't. They encouraged me to continue to tell my story. And I appreciated that. And that's why I ended up actually accepting the offer at. Have you heard feedback from younger physicians at the University of Texas who were inspired by you standing up for what's right? Absolutely. I actually, pre-pandemic, even through the pandemic, I did a little bit, but pre-pandemic, I did a lot of talks from coast to coast talking about different things like this. And so I did do some talks at the University of Texas with some of their different like medical organizations and things like that, student organizations on campus. But I also even went out to like California and Harvard and, you know, Oberlin University. And I kind of hopped around state to state talking about the bigger picture, not just the story. Yeah, the story is what brings everybody in because they saw it on the news. But really talking about, you know, the overarching issue of implicit bias and things like that. And what can we do to combat that? Do you have solutions in mind for how to best combat that or a place to start? Yeah, I think the place to start is within yourself. And so, you know, implicit bias, it's unconscious. And it's important to know that we all have it (laughs) and to recognize it so you're not allowing it to interfere with the decisions that you're making. And so, you know, very well being a physician that, you know, when you're treating a patient, you have to treat the patient, even if they have different morals than you different beliefs than you. And so sometimes avoiding certain conversations sometimes is helpful because if you know that this person, I don't know, this person's a criminal or whatever it may be, and you say it's not going to impact your judgment, you know, there's studies that prove that you do treat that patient differently. And that's just a part of being human. And so sometimes it's important to recognize, okay, what are the biases that I harbor and how can I put those aside and focus on, okay, how do I help this patient? So I think it's important in day to day, but I think it's also important in the workplace. Whether it be medicine, it's really important because this is somebody's life on the line. But I think it's important in other industries as well in the workplace. And so I think the first place to start is within yourself, identifying it, understanding that you have it. We all have it. 
and just being conscious of it in itself, by definition, is going to combat the unconscious nature of implicit bias to avoid that from getting in the way of making your decisions. And then I think secondly, it's important, you know, if someone's telling their story about a situation that has happened or has occurred, instead of writing them off or blowing them off or talking over them, just listen, you know, hear them out and try to understand. You can't always understand from somebody else's perspective, but try to understand where it's coming from. Because I used to talk about this a lot. And there's stories I talk about in my book with dealing with different things as an African-American when all of the different, you know, killings of innocent, you know, Black men were happening back to back. And 2016 was a big one. And so, you know, when I talk about stuff like that to my classmates and some of them are just like, oh, yeah, well, you know, they deserved it or they did this or they did that. And, and it's just like, you know, that's probably not the best approach. Like, just hear me out and think about how do I feel every day? How do I feel going through? Well, you're not a problem. You're not this. You're not that. And it's like, that could have very well been my dad or my brother or my nephew, my grandpa or whoever. And so just, I think, trying to understand instead of just blowing off somebody's situation. I think that's important as well. Definitely. Very important and very well said. This is Dr. Tamika Cross. Her book is What a Doctor Looks Like. Just came out in March of 2021. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast and tell us about your story, tell us your insights into implicit bias and what we can all keep in mind and try to do to move our culture forward in medicine to improve it. Thank you so much for coming on Doc Working, the Whole Physician Podcast. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed our conversation. As physicians, it's our job to deal with complex and challenging situations. And when we're taking care of patients, that's what we do, that's what we're good at. But there are situations that occur that are outside of patient care, like being overscheduled or a colleague who's acting inappropriately. We may feel in the context of a very busy schedule that we don't have time or the resources to go to anyone or to reach out for help in resolving this. But what if you were part of a community of like-minded physicians where you could go confidentially and discuss these issues and look for solutions and hear about experiences of other physicians and how they've solved similar problems, facilitated by a group of experienced coaches who specialize in working with physicians so that you could go back to work, fix these problems with confidence and get on to enjoying your life again. I'm Amanda Taran, producer of Doc Working, the Whole Physician podcast. Thank you for being here. Please check us out at docworking.com and please don't forget to like and subscribe. Thank you for listening.